Hello and welcome to Beyond Markets by Julius Baer, a series featuring conversations with experts to share recent market developments, key insights and strategic inputs from around the globe. In each episode, we cut through the noise to bring practical advice and macro research on today's shifting economic and market landscape. Please listen to the important legal information at the end of this podcast. Hello, everyone, and welcome to this episode of the Julius Baer Beyond Markets podcast series. My name is Bernadette Anderko, and today I'm delighted to be joined by our Head of Research, Christian Gattaker, and our Head of Research in Asia, Mark Matthews. Hello, Christian. Hello, Mark. Hello, Bernadette. Hi, Bernadette. We're here today to talk about Julius Baer's market outlook for 2024. Our title for this year's outlook is The Start of the New Cycle. So we'll discuss the current market environment and our recommendations in terms of the equity and fixed income markets. And of course, we'll cover the triggers for the end of the current economic cycle and discuss how investors can navigate the arrival of the new cycle when it comes to their asset choices and portfolio allocations. We saw global inflation and growth cooling off in 2023, Christian, And as the year ended, all the talk was finally when and not if the big central banks are going to start to cut rates. So what are your thoughts on what's going to determine the timing of these cuts? And what are your expectations as we start the year? Yeah, it's the economy stupid, as they said with the Clinton campaign. You know, it's always the question, when is the economy ready for that? And it's also the financial jargon about this cycle um, starting, which usually is kicked off by economic weakness and the response of central banks to that. Now, this time around, we had a very special cycle. It was a very condensed, a very short one and a very extreme one due to the the pandemic and all the other shocks uh, that were to be absorbed. So the end might be also quite different. So this time around, we might not even see a recession uh, before central banks uh, are starting to cut rates. So our expectation is that the slow economy and the slowing of inflation will allow uh, for a cut, a normalization in rates um, very soon, quite soon. Uh, in the uh, first or second quarter, we expect the Federal Reserve to start uh, in March and uh, or April, and uh, the same for the uh, European Central Bank. So against this backdrop, uh, we think um, this is really about where uh, the, the markets are heading. Now the question and the, and the big debate now has shifted to how strong will these cuts be? We expect them to be uh, rather muted, in particular for the United States, for the Federal Reserve, maybe more pronounced uh, for uh, the ECB, because uh, Europe, the Eurozone is really in the doldrums. But we think this is now the debate. We have, for instance, uh, 75 basis points, so three cuts uh, for the Federal Reserve, whereas the market, Federal Fund Futures market, has twice as much uh, until the year end. So we think that the economy will hold up and and stay resilient uh, much more than uh, the average uh, investor seems to be uh, discounting for now. Okay. And do you have a figure in mind then for global growth and inflation this year? Yeah, if you take the global experience, you know, uh, they think we'll be uh, more to 4% uh, as opposed to the almost 6% we had in 2023. Um, that's maybe uh, still looking a bit uh, heated. But if you take it uh, for the older economies uh, like the US and the more mature economies like the US and, and the Eurozone, you're actually getting close to 2% in terms of of inflation, which is pretty much pretty close to the comfort zone of of central banks. So against this backdrop, 
uh, we think uh, the most important thing is that basically 2024 is likely to be the low both in terms of growth and inflation on a global scale and from here and this is what what bourses with markets are financial markets are now uh, basically discounting the prospects of 2025 are what matters most for uh, what happens in financial markets in 2024 and the prospects are brightening for um, a recovery into next year and you still had positive numbers there so uh, you're not expecting the recession bell to be uh, ringing in 2024 then no, there's an outside chance, of course, that this happened. I mean, if you put a probability on that, we have something like uh, 15 to 30% for the US, which is low. Usually when real recession risks are looming, then you're uh, way above 50% in terms of probability. Um, we think for now, unless anything unexpected happens, another shock, which we don't have on the radar yet, or if something goes wrong unexpectedly, uh, there might be um, a, a more pronounced slowdown. Other than that, we think, you know, the global consumer is doing so well. Uh, overall, there's uh, wage growth still. Inflation rates are coming down. This means real wages are catching up. And against this perspective, if you look at uh, more mature economies, two-thirds uh, driven by consumption, it's all about this labor market dynamics, about wage growth and consumption, which is holding up pretty well. So we think, yes, it will be, a major slowing, it will sometimes feel, and in particularly in some sectors, it will feel like a recession. But uh, overall, for the economy, we don't expect a recession on a global scale, in particular for the US, which is the uh, kind of the, the lead engine. Okay. And moving across to you, Mark, Christian's obviously mentioned uh, US recession potential wildcard for 2024. But another risk to the rosy global growth and inflation picture this year is the balance sheet recession in China. Perhaps you could explain to our listeners what this actually is and, and what the main risks are that you see coming from China in 2024. Yes, Bernadette. Well, uh, a balance sheet recession, that was a term coined by a famous economist named Richard Koop, and he used it to describe the many years of economic stagnation in Japan after their bubble burst in 1991. And basically what it means is when people and companies have so much debt that they decide to pay it down. And then in paying down that debt, they obviously have left to spend on other things like investing in consumption, and that slows the economy down. And that's what happened in Japan over 20 years uh, with the bubble bursting in their property and stock market prices. And it's now happening in China. Their share market is 40% lower than what it was in 2007. I personally don't know a single Chinese person who views the stock market as a place to invest. Trading, maybe, but investing, I've never met one. And now residential property, and that's the primary store of wealth for people in China, that's falling too. So the official national residential price index is down about 15% from the peak, but the volume has dried up so much that if you want to sell, you're going to have to discount. And um, what we can see is that there are foreclosed homes that are being sold at a, an additional discount of 15%. So, so that means a total drop of 30% in residential property prices in China from the peak. And that's pretty material. You can imagine how you'd feel if your net worth went down by 30% in the space of a year or two. You're probably not going to be spending as much or investing. The other thing I just want to say is that the foreclosed homes that are actually uh, being you know, transacted are typically being bought by uh, people who are, want to live in them. They're not being bought by investors. 
And you have to ask yourself, given the state of the job market in China, particularly for young people, how many people are there who who will be buying to live in uh, when you've already got 50 million vacant residential units in China? So, Bernadette, uh, you asked about a risk, a main risk, and and the closest I see to a main risk is if this property sector really does become a systemic risk. But I'm sure if it did, the government would step in very quickly to put a stop to that. And what it's already doing is slowly nationalizing that sector. So in the absence of a big systemic crisis, I think the main risk for China, simply put, is that it's got another tough year in front of it. Uh, Our own GDP growth forecast is 4.4%. And I know that sounds like a lot for a developed uh, country in Europe, but for China, that's a a tough number. So President Xi's main priority is is cleaning up the property sector, and I think he's willing to continue to sacrifice growth to achieve that end. All right. So then, wild cards aside, our base case scenario is that we expect neither boom nor bust in 2024. And after a possibly jittery start to the year, confidence is expected to return. And as such, therefore, 2024 should be a good year for bonds and equities. Can I ask you then, Christian, what our key calls are as we start the year, please? Yes, of course, Bernadette. I think very unusual in terms of prospects compared to the past years uh, when we look at yield levels where we start from, you know, even uh, for the US safe haven uh, as a 10-year treasury uh, yielding uh, something around 4%. And especially given that there's prospects of rate cuts, which means, you know, these assets might even uh, gain in worth. This is a very uh, good proposition in our view to to remain quite conservative for the time being. Usually the end of the cycle and uh, until the first rate cuts are in, that's usually um, a time when uh, news flow is rather lackluster, sometimes even outright bad. And there you, you basically do best by holding quality assets, and that means in fixed income, uh, to really go for some long duration, um, long lasting uh, papers, bonds, treasuries, and lock in the yields and benefit from the, the cushion you get and the carry you generate uh, by uh, clipping the coupons. In emerging markets, we think there's uh, quite uh, an unusual situation there too. Um, there's particular uh, regional uh, distinction to be made in our view. We think Latin America has, has appeal, the Middle East as well and also good quality investment grades in Asia. Corporate issues there actually should benefit as well from lower yields on a global scale. And still, Swiss franc bonds um, are really kind of a safe haven and an anchor for global investors. It has done tremendously well, especially um, the currency. Uh, maybe, uh, you know, this is in the short run a bit overcrowded, but overall we think that that's a proposition. And in equities, still a preference for the US over Europe, uh, which means, you know, growth, stable growth, companies that do well even in a difficult economic environment when not all the boats are lifted and uh, with a defensive um, tilt in, in equities, uh, healthcare, for instance. But also, and this might not sound as defensive, we think uh, information technology and communications, you know, these, these companies started to behave like uh, utilities, which is a very stable uh, sector in terms of income. So we think this is really kind of the, at the outset, this is the, the way to go for quality, both in fixed income and equities. And then, you know, the big question is, when is the time to shift gears? And uh, given that the market is always trying to tune in, you know, when is the low in economic activity reached? And when actually are central banks promoting uh, economic prospects? 
I think we'll have uh, quite some opportunities on the way to go into more cyclical sectors, in particular in uh, the equity space, but also in terms of regional exposure. Uh, here, you know, Japan comes to mind. Uh, there's, a, of course, one of the most cyclical equity markets, given the strong uh, export exposure. And the beauty of Japan is that there's not only a cyclical story to that, but also a structural one. And I think Mark will, will elaborate on that later on. So I think this is something really to earmark or already start investing uh, at this stage. And then in emerging markets, uh, we like India and Brazil. We think they uh, benefit from quite particular situation geopolitically, but also in terms of um, domestic politics and the prospects uh, in uh, the years to come. And finally, on a thematic basis, uh, next generation, meaning the mega trends, the longer term prospects, we think cloud computing and artificial intelligence, future mobility, future cities and extended longevity, these themes actually, you know, after quite a difficult environment in some spaces over the past few years, there's really now the prospect as the situation will, in our view, stabilize that investors best add exposure there. And finally, on the currencies, um, the US dollar, we expect uh, some softening, especially as the Fed starts to cut rates and will uh, maybe get more upbeat uh, news flow outside uh, of the US. We think the yen, for instance, will be one of the beneficiaries of this situation. And this is also something that currency investors can uh, look into in this year. Why don't we delve a little bit deeper now and start looking at the asset classes? Christian, what would you expect for fixed income now going into 2024? Well, the uh, peak in yields is in and the question is you know how much uh, downside do we have in in yields or in other words how much upside do we have in in bonds uh, as an asset class we think uh, it's sizable um, even after the uh, contraction we had in yields uh, in the fourth quarter last year um, again you know we talked about this uh, quality tilt we think um, uh, the starting point uh, for 2024 is very favorable for fixed income markets uh, given the attractive real yield level and if, if uh, inflation comes down further you know real yields will actually continue to be quite sizable uh, as such uh, we still regard investment grade corporate bonds as attractive and prefer medium to longer term duration bonds to secure the yield over a longer period of time so quality is the name of the game in uh, fixed income and in rates uh, we expect them to come down uh, in 2024 we cannot rule out temporary setbacks, of course, in the bond market, because, you know, there's always chittery, as we said, when we get into the rate cut mode. But we see um, investment opportunities there in the medium to longer term. Europe, really, when it comes to fixed income, we think this is also about adding uh, longer maturities, uh, euro denominated bonds to lock in the current yields and mitigate reinvestment risks. That's a big shift to what we promoted last year when it was still quite... Uh, the ECB late in the games in terms of tightening. Now we think, you know, this is also about rate cuts and very soon. So we think this is something to, to benefit from in uh, the Eurozone as well. And then uh, in terms of um, the corporate uh, credit cycle there, of course, you know, we had a very resilient uh, situation, meaning the spreads, you know, what you paid extra for, for risky corporate issues was actually quite uh, quite uh, well behaved which means you know the, the opportunity there's a, a probably uh, less uh, viral at this stage 
uh, we think therefore you know there there is a certain risk that uh, when the economy is not or is struggling that some of these issues will actually lose some of their attractions so therefore we would rather not go into this high yield space now it's very expensive or quite expensive in historical terms and uh, probably doesn't really um, give you given what's what's to be made in in safe haven bonds uh, in the uh, individual asset class then in the eurozone um, still about peripherals uh, peripheral government bonds i mean you know given that uh, we expect some uh, brightening of prospects into 2025 uh, these uh, so-called weak links uh, within the eurozone actually should be doing uh, quite okay and uh, this means also that the uh, kind of the safe haven space in the eurozone like germany or uh, the netherlands actually are not the uh, prime choice uh, given this background so rather have some uh, kind of well diversified uh, government portfolio in the eurozone bond space okay what about emerging market bonds mark yes bernadette we upgraded our view on them uh last year late last year from neutral to overweight they have a yield of about 7% uh, in aggregate on average versus developed market investment grade, which is about 4.8%. Uh, the Latin American central banks were really the first to start raising rates a year before the Fed. Um, and so there's ample room for them to bring rates down. They've already started cutting, actually. They were the first to move on the way up. They're the first to move on the way down. And uh, as those rates come down, their growth rates will be going back to their pre-pandemic trends. So they did have an inflation shock, but they're over it now. The part of the world that I always felt the investors had kind of written off um, that's come back on the radar screen quite dramatically is the so-called uh, Gulf states, Saudi, UAE, Qatar, uh, those kind of countries. And um, the reason they're back on investor radar screens is that they enacted, um, before COVID actually, a number of really big reforms. Uh, tax, for example, uh, value-added tax to reduce their budget deficits, uh, new visas for economically accretive immigrants, um, and moving their economies uh, away from their very heavy dependence on oil and gas to, to other sectors. And I think it's working. Um, Dubai and Abu Dhabi, for example, have come out of the pandemic as, as great winners, I think. They're really on the map now as centers of commerce and finance and even centers of for culture and lifestyle in a way they weren't before. Uh, and, then, and then the last thing is the region that I am in, which is Asia. And uh, here in Asia, our fund managers get an average yield for investment-grade bonds of about 6.5%. You might think, well, What's why should I own that? It, you know, for for a little bit more of a yield when I can get uh, already about five and a half percent in U.S. investment grade. The thing is, you have to bear in mind the U.S. investment grade bonds have a duration on average of over seven years, and here in Asia, our investment grade bonds uh, have a duration of just four and a half years. So with that lower duration, uh, you get your investment back sooner. So there's less risk that rates will change and, and less risk that companies will default. So it is a space that uh, selectively we, we think there's good opportunities in emerging market, hard currency, investment grade bonds.
let's turn to equities now then. And we're starting 2024 maintaining our preference for US versus European equities and with a tilt towards quality growth. Is that right, Christian? Yes, correct. I think uh, this is a starting point uh, given, you know, this call for quality, the uncertainty around the uh, end of the cycle. And uh, you can ask yourself, you know, what would make us change uh, this view? And I think, you know, the biggest um, game changer would be actually China um, coming in with, with an unprecedented um, package of stimulus measures, uh, which is not in the cards in our view. But that, of course, would then benefit uh, very cyclical industries, very cyclical regions like Europe. But for the time being, we still think this is about growth stocks. This is about US-centric uh, business models and also Switzerland, by the way, which has a similar pattern uh, compared to the US. And then, you know, we take it from there and the cyclical opportunities will arise. So overall, we expect um, that yields and, and the rate environment is quite supportive uh, overall. Um, the presidential election cycle uh, also speaks in favor of, of a rather uh, juicy uh, equity year. And uh, we think maybe in terms of timing, this time around, who knows, maybe this time around it will be uh, uh, buy in May and stay instead of uh, sell in May and go away uh, because seasonal patterns in uh, election years can be quite different. Uh, but I think we have to remain open-minded here. Investors have to be, uh, as usual, open-minded because uh, there's always something unexpected happens for the time being. Uh, we think this is about uh, looking for shifting out of uh, more defensive issues over the year into maybe more risky stuff, um, depending on whether we're right about uh, the scenario we just painted. And maybe in terms of this um, sector tilt, yes, uh, this is really about keeping the winners in, the winners of the past year. We don't have an indication, despite this tremendous run some of these names have had, that this is reversing for now. Again, as I said, if China kind of behaves completely different from the way it did in the past 18 months or so, then we might have to look at this anew, but maybe we'll not even lose uh, money with the uh, growth, uh, the glamour stocks, but you will actually finally catch up with some of the other issues uh, over the time. So for the time being, we'll suggest to remain unchanged. And I'm right in thinking that you are still recommending a defensive tilt, yes? Yes, exactly. Uh, we think um, given where the economy is and the slowdown and also this outside uh, chance of, of, a, of an outright recession, uh, we think the defensives and some of them have actually suffered uh, or at least in relative terms haven't done so well. So we think healthcare is one of the major um, topics there and uh, together with the IT and communication space, I think with this, this is a good mix in the in the growth space. There's also a case for European utilities, um, very much in focus, you know, because of the geopolitical uh, issues around the energy supply. Uh, in Europe, we think uh, there is utilities, European utilities are spot on there. And uh, of course, you know, looking then beyond the short term dynamics, this is really about catching the uh, long term trends. And there, of course, uh, artificial intelligence has been one of the high flyers. We think this is uh, for the right reasons. Of course, this will always be tested. But we think this is not the time to call it a day here. This is uh, really about looking who's the real beneficiary here. And the beauty now is that this is not about fantasy and future. This is about quarterly earnings that are reported by the names. Uh, attached to it and we can follow them. Uh, we expect them to do well, extremely well. But again, the reality check is where, where it pays off. And uh, this is what we're going to do over, over the year, the course of 2024. Okay. 
And then as we start to anticipate this new cycle, um, we should start looking at cyclical stocks, I believe. And what kind of sectors do you find of interest there? Yeah, exactly. I think when, when this low, I mean, the market will try several times. Most likely there's always this kind of uh, back and forth to, to hit the bottom there. I wouldn't really suggest to go down that road and, and try to compete there. But if you can see that this is basically... Um, more or less over is in that there's a, a, a certain um, clarity building in terms of the cyclical prospects into 2025 over summer maybe this year uh, then it's time to look into more cyclical um, industries uh, meaning the ones that are highly attached to the global business cycle and there we favor at this stage the automotive sector semiconductors with of course also a structural uh, support but then in the real cyclical space, uh, machinery and equipment and also transportation, these will be the most benefiting from uh, better prospects into 2025. Christian touched on it earlier and closer to home for you, Mark, Japan. That's uh, also still very much a call for us, isn't it? Yes, uh, we uh, do like that market. And um, there are a lot of reasons for it. I mean, one would be simply the uh, fact that very few people are willing to invest in China. And so that's a you know $10 trillion vacuum that was created. And the only market in Asia that comes anywhere close to that size is Japan. Um, but I'll just rattle off a few statistics comparing Japan and the United States, where we see uh, lots of efficiency improvement, uh, at least the possibility of it. And, and we think it's happening. So the dividend payout ratio in the United States is 70%. In Japan, it's 30. Uh, buybacks is a percent of market cap. In the US, 3.5%. Japan, 1.4%. Listed companies trading under book value. In the US, only 4% of them do. In Japan, it's 50%. Cash is a percent of listed company market cap. In the US, is 7%. In Japan, is 21%. And then lastly, I'll just say household allocation to equities. In, in the US, it's 40%. In Japan, it's just 11%. And by the way, their pension fund equity allocation is only 25% compared to 40% in the United States. So, so those all explain why Japan was an opportunity cost in the past, but they also show the upside if those ratios start to improve. And they are. Take Toyota, for example. Toyota has a $40 billion portfolio of other companies, and it's starting to sell those down, starting with KDDI last year, the telecom company. Now they're selling a stake in Denso, the car parts maker. And they're buying back 100 billion yen of their own shares, by the way. And, and there's, there's about a dozen other names I could cite that you'd probably be familiar with that are doing the same thing. So I don't want to stigmatize or generalize. But uh, if I was to make an observation on Japanese society, it is a consensual society. Uh, and so when something becomes a trend, people usually follow it. These are very positive trends developing in corporate Japan. Uh, I'd also add that uh, this month, the Japan Exchange will begin publishing a list of companies that are uh, doing things to improve their corporate governance, kind of things that I just mentioned Toyota's doing. And that list will be updated on a monthly basis, kind of to try to humble the companies that aren't doing that kind of thing. So, so I don't want to overstate what's happening. 
But for sure, something is happening in Japan. Maybe it has something to do with the new generation, Generation Z. Maybe coming out of COVID, they changed somehow. Maybe having China right next to them is waking them up a little bit. And Warren Buffett taking those big stakes in the、uh, trading companies. He rarely buys outside the United States. Whatever it is, there's something different about the country and in a good way. Okay. And of course, we're working for a Swiss bank, Christian, so we can't really forget our home market, Switzerland, can we? Yes, of course. And、uh, we're always a bit split, you know, because、uh, being Swiss, we don't really like to promote our, our home market so much because we're、um, too shy to do so. But I think it's, it's something that is of real benefit for global investors, has proven to be one of the,、um, the best、um, add ons in terms of exposure when it comes to both equities and bonds. And the reason for that is the,、uh, the currency regime, which is very different to, to any other currency regime, which means, you know, a strong currency. As a principle, and this is、uh, for the benefit of, of investors, as it turns out, over the long run,、um, in particular,、uh, if you kind of look at it from, a, from an overall performance point of view. So, in other words, it always looks like, like、um, 2023, you know, it looks like underwhelming what, what Swiss stocks, for instance, did. But then, you, of course, you have to consider the currency. So, if you're a euro based or a dollar based investor, you have to look what you made in terms of the Swiss francs and actually. Even with these low single digit returns in, in equities, you got an extra almost 10% by the currency. And in other years where the risk appetite then improves and the Swiss franc might even devalue for that reason,、uh, you get a stronger capital gain in your, in your assets. And we think this is a very appealing proposal. So, still, you know, we've had a tremendous run in the currency. Uh, we think maybe this is the time to be more focused on Swiss equities than Swiss bonds after this、uh, very, very, I mean, double digit returns、uh, last year.、Uh, but something to bear in mind and keep and really keep as for global investors as an insurance policy against、uh, bad times. Now, finally, I realize we're approaching the end and we haven't said anything about、uh, commodities yet, Christian. So, is there something you'd like to add there? Yes, we think、uh, this is not、uh, the place to be、um, structurally, but also in 2024. I mean, the, the past year was even a, a challenging one.、Um, my colleagues like to speak of a, a supercharged cycle instead of a super cycle. So, it's not that we have something like in the, in the first decade of this、uh, century where, where you know, there's no limit to.、Uh, to Commodity prices. Rather, we think there's a huge, not boom and bust, but huge cycles within the commodity space. And we're basically also here、uh, ending one in particular when it comes to oil. So, our key pred- prediction is here that、uh, we'll see、uh, oil trading at、uh, $70 per barrel、uh, this year. The energy crisis is over, in our view, the supply crisis or the perceived supply crisis.、Um, as to gold,、um, there we think a lot of this monetary policy reversal is already priced in. And interesting to see that、uh, the safe haven seekers, the ones who bought gold for、um, fear of, of a global meltdown or something like that, they're basically leaving, keep leaving the space. So we think the case for gold、um, is not really there in 2024. And then maybe on a more positive note, Structurally, also, we think、uh, copper remains one of the most interesting grades. There's a, a, huge, a huge undersupply, a structural undersupply looming、um, until the end of the decade because、uh, a lot of this、uh, energy transition. 
uh, investments will will require a lot of copper and there is a supply shortage uh, given uh, what's uh, available in mining. So we think this is one of the few bright spots also from a, a more structural point of view. I think we could probably talk a lot longer on these recommendations for 2024, but we really are out of time now. Is there anything else you'd like to add before we go? Yes, Bernadette, if I may, um, because I assume that uh, many of our listeners will think that uh, the US elections are the elephant in the room. And uh, indeed, you know, we didn't talk about uh, geopolitics. Uh, and that's uh, for a reason, because we think, um, uh, first of all, it's not our key um, business to predict politics. Uh, it's, it's a different uh, art uh, or science, uh, some claim. But more importantly, um, we think that uh, it's very, very unlikely that we'll see any tangible uh, outcomes actually before the uh, date, the election date in November 2024. And even, uh, you know, could be even worse that we don't even get a final result uh, as we've experienced in some of the past elections. So I think to really bank on the on elections is really premature. It's too close to call, first of all, between the two candidates. And secondly, uh, what makes it even more complicated is that there might be even a third or a fourth uh, candidate, you know, from the Green Party. And we know what that did uh, to the election uh, situation. Actually, it overthrows the arithmetics completely. And therefore, we think it's a very difficult call to be made. Uh, the only thing we can say is that there's a certain leniency from the central bank, uh, as it usually is during election years, and therefore, um, you know, the uh, rate environment will be rather supportive for markets. But of course, uh, this will remain uh, very much news flow driven. And still, you know, even if the news flow turns very negative or very positive in one way or the other, we think it's it's not really tangible uh, until we really get the final result, hopefully in November. Well, that concludes the Market Outlook 2024 podcast. Thank you, Christian, and thank you, Mark, for your time and your interesting insights into the year ahead. We hope you've enjoyed listening and that it's given you food for thought. In fact, if you want a daily update on the market action, why not subscribe to our weekday Moving Markets podcast? Please feel free to leave us a review on whichever platform you choose to listen to us and join us again soon. Goodbye for now. You have been listening to Beyond Markets by Julius Baer. If you like what you heard, subscribe to our show on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you listen. To learn more about Julius Baer, our people, our latest thinking, visit us at www.juliusbaer.com. We will be back with a brand new episode soon. This is a podcast disclaimer. The information and opinions expressed in this podcast constitute marketing material and are not the result of independent financial or investment research. The podcast content is intended for information purposes only and does not constitute an offer, a recommendation or an invitation by or on behalf of Julius Baer to buy or sell any securities. Securities